it's not new that we've been going through the first six chapters that judgment is coming, but uh, the Lord continues to drive the point home that Israel or Judah, that their ways have brought this to pass, are bringing this to pass. Um, and, you know, if you ever, um, uh, the repetitiveness of this chapter, uh, it would be like, you know, in the backyard when someone has a really big, mean dog, they have the sign that says, beware of dog. This would be more like putting beware of dog all around, I mean, like hundreds of beware of dog all the way around, you know, and you completely ignore it, you know, just have, paying no attention to it whatsoever. I didn't see the sign. Uh, although in this case, it would be more like God saying, dog will soon be let out. Uh, something along those lines, uh, not beware of it, but dog, soon I'm going to open gate and dog's going to come out. We walk by a dog like that in our neighborhood. Uh, there's a German shepherd that we believe um, is uh, 98% wolf and 2% uh, German shepherd. Uh, this dog, if it ever gets out, our neighborhood is in serious trouble. It's like 130 pounds. He's foaming at the mouth to destroy me every time I walk by him. Um, so uh, it would be one of those fight for your life kind of things if he gets out. So I don't know what the, uh, the people, uh, I guess they assume that um, that fence will hold him. We're not so, quite so sure when we walk by there. But, uh, but one thing's for certain, when God's judgment releases, there's nothing to hold it back. There's nothing to stop it. All the prophet can do is write it down. If you're taking notes, our time in God's Word tonight uh, titled our message or our time in God's Word in the study tonight is Trouble is Near. Trouble is Near. We'll look at three things this evening. The timing, the terror, and the terms. The timing, the terror, and the terms. Now as far as the timing goes, 800 years earlier from when Ezekiel's receiving this message, eight hundred years earlier. So for you and I, that takes us way back to the time of like, yeah, well, 800 years ago, that would take us even before, that would take us before Marco Polo and Kublai Khan and, and, and you know, back in the 1200, late, that would, be, that would take us to the early 1200s. And, and so that, that gives you an idea how long back in, in our thinking uh, that would be. But 800 years earlier, Moses, and then right after him, Joshua, they had warned Israel not to turn away from the Lord. And when and if they did, there would be certain destruction. Moses told them. Joshua told them. Moses, just before going into the Promised Land, Joshua, near the end of his life, and his warning and just as the Lord had a, remember, just as the Lord established Israel, He's the one that can remove Israel. And the same is you you find people that it, you know, the very God who gave you and I life is the same God that determines what He will do with our lives. True, you didn't decide to be born, you didn't decide to create yourself. I didn't decide to be born. I didn't decide to create myself. Israel didn't decide as a nation to be born. God birthed them as a nation. You know, there's some moms that say, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Right? You've heard that, right? God's both mother and father to a nation. And it is true. 
God can say, I brought you in and I most certainly can take you out. And he's not kidding. He was warning through Moses, warning through uh, Joshua many, many years before. Let's, turn, let's look at Deuteronomy 28. Turn back to Deuteronomy 28. Let you see for yourself, some of you familiar with Deuteronomy 28, famous chapter of the Bible on blessings and cursings. 14 verses that tell the nation of Israel, and in fact any nation for that matter, although it's specifically to Israel, I believe any nation that would choose as a nation to serve the Lord would benefit with the same blessings. Because God is no respecter of persons. This was written to Israel, but you can be assured if America were to repent, I mean repent like Nineveh repented, and turn from her evil ways, then he would hear from heaven, right? And he would bless. And that's what we na- tomorrow's National Day of Prayer. We'll be praying for that. We continue to pray for that. But the first 14 verses, and you, you really, if you haven't read Deuteronomy 28, or you haven't read it in a long time, read the whole chapter. Take, maybe take a time this, maybe take time tomorrow with the National Day of Prayer. Read the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. Uh, it is beautiful and frightening all in the same chapter. But look at, uh, look at verses, uh, starting with verse 47. Remember, the original warning here came back from Moses 800 years earlier, and this is what the Lord said through Moses to the people. Because you did not serve the Lord your God. Now Moses is looking forward as if it's already happened. He's looking forward in time. He says in verse 40, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. Now think of America. We have an abundance of everything. Even people that come from other countries walk in our grocery stores. We had our Spanish exchange student. She was amazed at the size of our grocery stores. She thought Super Walmart was way over the top. Sorry, Randy. <laughs> it was overwhelming. And you could buy everything there. Mops, a pair, a TV, all in the same place. Everything. But Israel, too, God had blessed them with an abundance of all kinds of things. Now Moses is looking forward, and he goes on in verse 48, Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in a need of everything. Remember, they had an abundance of everything. Then God said, you'll have a need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies. A nation whose language you will not understand a nation of fierce countenance which does not respect the elderly nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave your grain or new wine or oil or the increase of cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. They shall besiege you at your gates. Remember, they weren't even in the promised land yet. They're still in the wilderness. They didn't have any walled cities. He's looking forward to when they would have walled cities And he's most specifically talking about Jerusalem here. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down through all all the land. They shall besiege you at all your gates through all all your land. Watch the Lord, uh, which the Lord uh, your God has given you. Verse 53, you shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. 
in the siege and in desperate straits in which your enemy will distress you. Moses looking forward 800 years, 800 plus years, to what would take place. An enemy would come from a faraway land, a language they would not know, would besiege the city gates. You'll actually eat your own children and your own offspring, and it will all be because you would not follow the Lord even though he had given you everything. The very things that God gives us become the idols. Isn't it interesting? God gives you a better paying job. God gives you more time. God gives you better health. And what do people do with it? Now that I feel so good, I don't want to go to church. Now that I have so much money, I don't want to give to this or that and the other. I just want to take, spend it on myself. Now that I have this much time, I want to spend it on me. Spending it on our own pleasures. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what the scriptures talk about. And that's what Israel would become. And Moses said, this is what will happen. When your nation begins to love themselves and your own pleasures and forget the very pleasures you have, God gave you. Right? It's just like the parent that raises the child and, and gives them something to eat and feeds them three meals a day and takes really good care of them. As soon as the kid's old enough to say, thanks, I don't want you anymore. It's like, how did it happen? And that's what Israel would do. And Moses says, but uh, it will be a grave, grave mistake. Now turn over to Joshua chapter 23. That was Moses. Then Joshua coming near the end of his life, his farewell address in the 23rd chapter of Joshua. Again, a little sooner, but still in the neighborhood of 800 plus years earlier. Joshua, uh, in chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, he says, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God has promised you, all the blessings that God promised, you'll have them. So the Lord will bring upon you all the harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you have transgressed the covenant. Why would God destroy them? Because they had transgressed grest the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. You have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Long before Ezekiel, Moses and Joshua said, this is exactly what will happen. You will turn away from the Lord. You will serve other gods. The very gods God drove out, you'll embrace them. The very things that God considered abominations, you'll take them up and you'll introduce them and they'll proliferate and you'll build the high places on the top of the mountains where you'll rejoice and there'll be all kinds of immorality up there and there'll be all the things we saw last time we were together. The corpses will be laid around there. Literally, the Babylonian army would lay the people like logs after they slaughtered them around their own uh, as a mockery to the people for the worship there. But all these things would come to pass. Now Jeremiah, who was older than Ezekiel and older than Daniel, but still a contemporary of them both, he was older, came before them, uh, but yet he had prophesied himself, and he was still alive. Jeremiah was alive when Ezekiel's receiving this message from the Lord in chapter 7. Jeremiah was living, Daniel got carried away in siege number one, Ezekiel got carried away in siege number two, 
Jeremiah was not carried away. He was still in Jerusalem. God left another prophet. Does God not cover all the bases? Daniel's over in Babylon. He's doing his thing. Ezekiel's over in Babylon. He's doing what the Lord has. And he has Jeremiah back in Jerusalem. He's still walking around Jerusalem trying to convince everyone. They, so they've got a witness in every direction, right? By the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything will be established. The people in Jerusalem have Jeremiah telling them that judgment's coming. But they don't believe him either because he's been saying this for 30 plus years. The old man doesn't know what he's talking about. The old man doesn't have a clue. The mall's still open, right? Everything's still working. Red box is still there when I need it. All that stuff. They didn't have red box back then, but you get the idea. All the stuff is everything's working just fine. I don't know what Jeremiah's talking about. Of course, they have no idea that Ezekiel's hearing from God. They don't know where he's at. They know he's in Babylon, but they're not hearing from him anyway. He's talking to the local captives. Jeremiah's back in Jerusalem. He's older. He's been saying this for 30 plus years. The judgment's coming and they're not listening to him. They mocked Jeremiah, rejected Jeremiah, and they rejected any notion that doom or destruction was coming. Again, this still blows my mind because the ten tribes have been carried away. Cities have been ravished numerous times before. But in their mind, those were all just bad days in the past. Kind of the way we would look at the Civil War, right? The Civil War, you you try and get a young person today to say, does the Civil War bother you? Yeah, it was ancient history. Could it ever happen again? Of course not. Really? Of course not. So you think that we're, we're, we're distinguished different than people like in Ukraine or Africa or anywhere else that has exploded into war. There's something more noble about us or better that we couldn't disintegrate down into the same thing that our forefathers have done? No, of course not. Anything that's ever happened in the past, Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Anything that's been done before can certainly be done again. Because wherever there's evil hearts, and there's enough of them everywhere, including our own, anything could happen. And we know that these things, uh, there was more than enough evidence for the person living in Jerusalem to know that maybe I should be listening to Jeremiah. Or if you're over one of the captives, who already, the fact that you were taken captive, that would be a pretty good clue that maybe, just maybe, Ezekiel's on to something. In a, here in America, a study cited by the Ponce Foundation states that only 22% of Americans who identify themselves as Christians believe the Bible is fully inspired by God himself and written by men who were divinely appointed by the Lord Almighty. So only 22% of people who call themselves Christians believe that the Bible really is God's inspired word. Now what that means is if you don't believe it's God's inspired word, you can just take and choose whatever you want to believe. Does this apply to marriage? Eh, not to me it doesn't. Does this apply? Eh, not to me it doesn't. Do we have to be concerned with these parallels? No, not at all. And just like there was false prophets in those days, there'll be false prophets in our own time. Because you have Ezekiel saying, thus saith the Lord. You have Jeremiah back in Jerusalem saying, thus saith the Lord. But you also had others. Turn, to your, turn just left in your Bibles to Lamentations. Small little book written by, we believe, Jeremiah. Lamentations. 
Look at Lamentations chapter 2. Look at verse 14. See, while Ezekiel has been warning people in the first few chapters here, since he had his first vision back, which was his first vision was around 593 B.C., but since he had the first vision and he's been warning people, he's been laying on his side a lot, as you, you know, that, that would have to continue because that went on for even past some of these other, uh, that, he'd have to fit the laying in on the side and then later in the day he might preach a message, depends on what God's given him. But uh, look at Lamentations 2.14. This is what we believe Jeremiah wrote. Uh, we're not 100% positive he's the writer of Lamentations, but this is what it says. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity. In other words, they haven't preached against sin at all. Sound familiar? They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. I saw just today uh, one of the celebrity pastors, although he doesn't uh, occupy the pulpit there in Mars Hill, Rob Bell has been, uh, Grant, Oprah's put a spot on the Oprah network for him. Now Rob Bell, he's, beca- his, he's becoming even more popular ever since he wrote his book Love Wins where uh, he denies that there's even, that people are going to hell. If, the, if no one's going to hell, then Jesus' death on the cross was the absolute biggest waste of time ever. Of course, we know that's not the case. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross is the most important event, that and the resurrection, together of all times. But we have, we have false prophets today that people are very much... They, people want to hear that no matter what you do, you're not, there's not going to be any... Pun- now, if you read Ezekiel 7, you can't possibly come away with the impression that no matter what you do, God will not have a consequence. It's pretty black and white, isn't it? And we know Jesus himself warned, even tells us of Lazarus in hell. And that was not a parable. He talked about Lazarus in hell in torment. And even said that even if he had raised him from the dead to go back and tell his brothers, it wouldn't matter. Because people, if they wouldn't believe what? This, they wouldn't believe even if someone was risen from the dead. And of course, we know that took place. Jesus raised another Lazarus, a different Lazarus. And when he raised the Lazarus, what did the people do? They wanted to kill that Lazarus to make sure that he couldn't be re-resurrected. The heart of denial is people want delusion. They would rather listen to someone who is telling them exactly, hey, it's all going to be okay. This, this fantasy cruise we're on will never stop. And that's what the false prophets were saying in, in Ezekiel Jeremiah trying to say, no, 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 it it will stop. Turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord while you can. If you don't believe the word of God's from himself, you're going to dismiss the words of his prophets. You're going to dismiss the words of the men he has appointed to preach and teach his word. And this is with the case with Ezekiel and with Jeremiah and others. Um, Now, Ezekiel, as I mentioned, he began to prophesy what the Lord was giving him around 593 B.C. And chapter 8, we we won't look at chapter 8, but if you go to chapter 8, you'll see the first verse. It tells us um, a time frame. It came to pass in the sixth year and the sixth month. We can take chapter 8's date uh, that is given, or the date frame that's given, 
and we can look at that and know that uh, we're looking somewhere in the range. Chapter 7 is somewhere around um, 592 B.C., so maybe a, perhaps about a year later, uh, somewhere in that range, somewhere between 593 592. Well, what that means is that the siege of Jerusalem is about four to five years away from taking place. Four to five years away from taking place. Now, anything that hasn't taken place yet, and to the person who doesn't see it on the horizon, they can draw the conclusion that it'll never happen at all. Right? If a prophet were to come and say, uh, Jerusalem will be destroyed in four to five years, although that's not what God says. He doesn't give the time frame. If you were listening to everything I read... God says it's come, it's come, it's near, all these other things. But he doesn't say when, he just says it's coming. Jesus says it this way about his return from the church. Surely I'm coming quickly. Why does he not give an exact time? Because it's our job to be ready. Period. Be ready. He doesn't give, if you could know the time, he, know, he knows that our nature would be, well, if we know it's, you know, uh, this is the way I used to prepare for exams at, in college and high school. Because I knew when it was, I did absolutely nothing for weeks. But the night before, I'd pull an all-nighter. Anyone ever else do that? All of a sudden, it would be like I got the religion of study out of nowhere. And this is exactly what would happen if everyone knew the date of anything. They're, they're working and they're uh, dedication would be rather weak and it would be rather superficial. But if we really love the master, we're working and ready all the time. And so the time frame isn't given. But what they don't know is that really the destruction is in about four or five years. Not four or five hundred years. It's now really close. Four to five years. But they don't think that. Just like many, many in America might think, think the same. They might think, Nothing could ever change. We have the most perfect system. We've got, we've got F-16s. We've got Tomahawks. We've got Wall Street. We've got the brilliance of Hollywood helping us out. What could possibly go wrong? Somewhere between four or five years, the siege, he's given chapter 7. Four to five years away now. He doesn't even know the exact time frame. I'm talking about Ezekiel. He just knows God says it's coming. And the Lord has pronounced judgment on the land. It says in verse uh, 2, The Son of Man thus saith the Lord to the land of Israel. To the four corners, he says in, in verse 2. An end, an end has come to the four corners of the land. Take the land, whatever the, what was left. Now, interesting, he speaks to Israel here and not to Judah. Even though Jerusalem was still part of what remained of the southern kingdom of Judah, but he speaks to all Israel, even though Israel has already been, the ten tribes to the north had been taken away years earlier by the Assyrians. But he's speaking to now the totality of Israel, and there are still some in the Israel that were folded into Judah. We talked about that uh, in previous studies. But under this timing, if you're taking notes, three things. I want you to just kind of jot down. It's official, it's set, and it's near. It's official, it's set, and it's near. Similar like if you ever put a vacation together and you and the family sits down, you debate, do we want to go to the mountains or the beach? 
You kind of bait back and forth. Do we want to go camping or a hotel? That's an easy one in my house. Uh, camping's not the most popular thing. So uh, for those of you that love camping and love mosquitoes and all that stuff, uh, uh, you might choose that. But, you know, you kind of go through the thing, and then you finally decide where you're going to go. It's official. You put, a down pe- you put a deposit down. It's official. This is where we're going. And then you actually make the full payment and set a date. You actually have to set a date to go somewhere like that. So you say, we're going to set the date. We're going to go August uh, 1st through 7th. And so the date is now set. So it's officially, that's where we're going. We've knocked out all the other official, that's where we're headed. Here's the date. And then finally, the timing is near. Well, if it was August, it's about three months away. It's not that far away. It's not three years away. It's not 30 years away. It's three months away. And the same is true here. Uh, for Israel, or in this case uh, Jerusalem and what remains there in Judah. Uh, verse 2, an end has come. As I mentioned, the end has come. The four corners of the land. And the Lord says it uh, in the earlier part of that verse, thus says the Lord to the land. What makes it official is thus says the Lord to the land. When the Lord says it, it's official. The seal is on the message. Thus says the Lord to the land. You can mark it down, post it up, and if Ezekiel wanted to go back and write it out as a decree, he could post it up there with the captives. Thus says the Lord, officially. Where? The four corners of the land and everything in it. It's like a picture box. Everything inside it. The four corners of the land, the parameters, inclusive of all of Israel, is going to receive this judgment. It's set. Verse 43, uh, verse 3. Not 43, there's not even 43 verses, but verse 3. It's fully determined. Look at verse 3. Now the end has come upon you. Fully determined. Now. Now the end. Now. In other words, the train has already left the station in God's timing, but it hasn't arrived at Jerusalem yet. Remember when Daniel was praying and the angel had left but was delayed? The angel had left, and Daniel's like thinking, my prayer was not heard, and you know, this is never going to, why am I praying, and my prayer's not heard. But actually the answer had come, but it, there was this battle with a demonic force on the way until it gets there. But it's going to get there. But when, God, when the train leaves God's station, it arrives right on time. So they don't know that four or five years, God says to Ezekiel, it's official, here's the, um, here's the set that I say now, it's rolling into motion, it's on its way, it's fully determined. It's like, you know, when you see the dark clouds, we were driving back in North Carolina, we saw these dark clouds in front of us, we didn't have to wonder, I wonder if we're going to get sprinkled on. We're heading straight into it. And even though we tried to delay, it didn't matter. They came from the backside then, they came from the left, they were ahead of us. First we saw dark clouds this way, so well if we'd stop and would make or take our time. Didn't matter. Uh, the thing about moisture is it grows. So it kept sucking up and now it was behind us, beside us, on top of us. We knew that it was coming. It was hovering. And it's near. He look at verse 7. Um, Doom has come to you who dwell in the land. The time has come. A day of trouble is near. It's near. <laughs> He says it again in verse 12. Look at verse 12. The time has come. The day draws near. Day draws near. How near, people ask. That's what people always want to know. 
I remember when I first got saved, um, a message that I'll never forget, you know, and I remember the pastor was like, so what you're really asking is, how close can I live to the world and still go to heaven? Is that, is that, is that really the question? How close can I really live to the world? Uh, how, how near is near? When's Jesus actually coming back? Well, he could come at any time. Give me all the, because I need to know, because I'm trying to plan out when I kind of want to commit and get all in. But it's near. You know, if God says near, that should be enough for us, shouldn't it? He says it twice here. A day of trouble is near. The day draws near. You know, the world's response, I've had, um, I've had this discussion with people that genuinely, I think, didn't disagree with me that judgment could be around the corner. I've had unsaved people that have have actually almost acquiesced, and I don't think just to kind of shut me up, although maybe, I think they really genuinely say, okay, I I grant you, it it may be coming. Matter of fact, maybe it is, but what could I do about it anyway? Bad response. (laughs) There is something you can do, because it wasn't said like, I would do whatever. It's like, I couldn't stop it anyway. So remember the Prince song, Tonight We're Going to Party Like It's 1999? That was big, you know, I graduated high school in 87, so when that song came out, 99 seemed like it was going to be a ways away, and, uh, and when you, 1999 was like the end of the world, because 2000, Y2K and all, they didn't know about that when Prince wrote the song, but anyway, you know, but that is the philosophy a lot of people say, well, if it's all going to go down, I should just have as good a time as I possibly can, because we don't know what's going to happen anyway, and the mindset is that I'm just going to get incinerated by some nuclear weapon. And I won't remember anything. Of course, if you wake up in hell, that doesn't help you anyway. But that wasn't what's going to happen to Judah and Jerusalem. It wasn't going to be an instantaneous thing. It was going to be a slow and painful thing, as Moses had said 800 years earlier, that the city walls would be besieged, that you would starve and be naked and eat your own children. It wouldn't be like some, well, I just kind of fall asleep. Like some of the Nazi leaders would take a cyanide pill and just go to sleep and it'd be over. That wasn't going to be the end. And, but, and you can't even pick and choose that stuff. What, you couldn't pick choose the day you're born. What would make you think? I have these discussions with people and say, rationally, do you really think that you would be able to just dictate how things could unravel? You couldn't. Our response, though, our response should be, when we know that the Lord is coming back, or we know judgment will be coming, our response, 2 Peter 3.11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of our persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? You know, Ezekiel doesn't want to hear this any more than anyone else does, in the sense that he loves his nation, he loves Jerusalem, he doesn't want to see judgment, but he has to still be a loving gentle distributor of the truth to the people around him. That's all. It's his responsibility. Same as Noah's was. Hey, I'm building this boat. Would you like to get on? No. Okay. I'm going to keep building for a long time, about close to 100 years. Anyone want to get on? No, not interested. We can put a lot of room. We can put animals on here. There's room for you too. Mm Mm-mm. We've never seen a flood. We don't expect to see one. Just because you've never seen something doesn't mean Jerusalem, they hadn't seen Jerusalem get leveled, so they didn't assume 
it could happen. Let's look at the last two things, the terror, for just briefly here. The terror, well, we know who the terror is coming from. It's coming from the Lord himself. He says in verse 3, I will send my anger against you. He uses Babylon, but it's not Babylon that's doing it. It's his own anger that's going to send it. I will send my anger against you. I will judge. Verse 3. I will repay. Look at verse 4. I will repay. Look at verse 8. Now upon you I will soon pour out my fury. Also in verse 8. I will judge. Also in verse 8. I will repay. Verse 9. I will repay. Terror comes from the Lord. Even in the New Testament, Paul wrote, writes in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. That's the New Testament. Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, because Paul didn't have a New Testament. Guess what book Paul wrote? The Old Testament. He said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Knowing that whatever God has done in the past... He will do again. That's what Peter wrote, the same thing. He said, willingly, they forget the flood. Willingly, they forget all the things that God did in the past. But all these things, if we remain in a state, look at verse 10, pride has budded. If we remain in a state of pride and self-reliance, it just, you know, I've said this before, but after 9-11, it still killed me. I'm like, of all the things... Bumper stickers went up everywhere, power of pride. I'm like, that's the worst possible response bumper sticker. It should see the power of humility, the power of prayer, the power of repentance, but not the power of pride. I know that people would say, well, that's not the way we meant it. But a lot of times we do have the proverbial Freudian slip. The things that we say really reveal out of the heart, what comes out of the mouth actually is fairly revealing, and the things that we don't even, doesn't dawn on us, we kind of speak our own condemnation sometimes in that sense, that we would think the power of pride. But the Lord says all these things because Israel has completely rejected all that I've done, all that I have given Turn back just, just real briefly to Lamentations chapter 2. We were there. Uh, look at one other thing also in Lamentations chapter 2. Why I want you to look at this is Lamentations is an eyewitness account that we believe is Jeremiah. I, most scholars are fairly certain it was Jeremiah, but again, since the author doesn't say that, uh, but for a lot of reasons. We believe Lamentations was written by Jeremiah, but it was either an eyewitness account or written just after Jerusalem was leveled, right? Most of us could write an eyewitness account of 9-11 because most of us were alive. I think every, well, everyone here was alive there and then, so we could all write as best we could what we remember that day. We could write all the details down, how we saw people react, how people felt, how you felt, how it looked to you, you could write all that down live during it or days after. You could write it tonight, and you would still be accurate because vivid memory would be there. You'd be able to write it down, no problem. Most of you that were alive when, when President Kennedy was shot, you could do the same thing. You'd be able to write down a dark day because you won't forget it, right? 
Well, whoever, and I believe it was Jeremiah, wrote Lamentations as a live report or shortly after, um, look at what he says. Remember that the terror comes from the Lord. Look at, the, look at what is said in chapter 2, starting in verse 1, how the Lord has covered, how the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud of his anger. Talk about the looming clouds. Jump over to verse 5, just because we don't have much time. Verse 5, the Lord was like an enemy. Actually, start with verse 4. Start with verse 4. Standing like an enemy, he bent his bow. With his right hand like an adversary, he has slain all those who were pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Again, this Jerusalem was consumed. They set it on fire after they tore the walls down. They set the whole city on fire, burn it to the ground. Verse 5, the Lord was like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all her palaces. He has destroyed her strongholds and has increased mourning lamentation and the daughter of Judah. The Lord would tear, but the Lord would repair. It would be later that the Lord would send Nehemiah back. And Ezra would come back and they would be, the Lord would tear, but the Lord would repair. Because the Lord is never desiring that there would be utter destruction. It's a last resort kind of thing. It's what the people had brought upon themselves. Hebrews 10, 31, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. I don't know about you, but I have a healthy fear of the Lord. And it's a really good thing. Because sometimes we have an inclination to do really dumb stuff that could like, be really damaging to our lives and other people's lives. And the Lord says, what in the world are you thinking? Did, every, did anyone ever get away with that? It's good for us to have a healthy fear of the Lord, isn't it? We all need a really healthy fear. You either fear the Lord or you'll fear other things. And if you fear nothing, that's problematic also because people that fear nothing have brought some of the worst horrors on this world as dictators and serial killers and all the other things that are out there. But this terror that Israel will experience will come directly from the Lord. Last thing, we'll close with the terms. What do I mean by that? Well, the terms of the judgment. The terms of the judgment are spelled out, I will judge you in verse 3 according to your ways. The Bible has an axiom, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. We're judged, when the books are open, for those that are not saved, they'll be judged according to their works. The terms are, you either repent and receive mercy and grace, or you say, I do not want mercy and grace. Judge me based on my lifestyle and what I do. And if finally God says, okay, thus I will do. I'll judge you according to your ways. You would not repent and receive mercy, therefore you'll be judged according to your ways. Anything we receive based on our ways is fair because we're in wickedness. We're in sin. We're in rebellion. We're rejecting the Lord. And so all these times that I have marked in my Bible where the Lord says, the end has come. 
The end has come. Behold, it has come. An end has come. The end has come. I'm reading these. These are all separate. Behold, it has come. Doom has come. The time has come. Behold, it has come. The time has come. All those times. Those are all different in just the same chapter that I read. The Lord says, why have they come? Because of your ways. Because the Lord has said, you can jot this one down in your uh, notes, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 16. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verses 14 through 16. Listen to this indictment. Now, this is written about Jerusalem's judgment. It's actually recorded not only in Lamentations, but four other places, including 2 Chronicles 36. This is written around 450 B.C., many years after Jerusalem was destroyed. We believe it was written by Ezra. The very next book in your Bible is Ezra. 2 Chronicles, then comes Ezra. We believe Ezra wrote it. But listen to what the writer says. This is hundreds of years after Jerusalem destroyed. Now, we've, we've gone a long ways. We went 800 years before with Moses. Now we're going to 450 B.C. This is written about the destruction of Jerusalem, and this is what is written. Chapter 36, 2 Chronicles, starting verse 14. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more, according to all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. What? What an encapsulation of the whole thing. Just that, I, I could have just read those verses and we could have gone home. 450 B.C., someone, we believe Ezra, basically summed it all up and said, here's how it went down. Our leaders, our rulers, our religious leaders, and our political leaders became really corrupt. Hmm. Does that sound familiar? He said, our leaders, he said, moreover, all the leaders and priests of the people transgress more and more. Notice that he starts at the top. He says, our top-line leaders became really wicked, and the people followed them right like a Pied Piper, right into wickedness, and they did whatever they wanted to. And they transgressed more and more. They became more wicked. They did all the abominations of the nations. They defiled the house of the Lord. And then God did this. He sent warning after warning after warning, and he sent messenger after messenger after messenger. What did they do? They scoffed and mocked them and said, never going to happen. And then his wrath arose, and there was no remedy. 2 Chronicles chapter, six, uh, chapter 36, 14 through 16. Leonard Ravenhill, who died in 1994, he was born in 1907, great preacher here in America, he said, the only reason we don't have revival is because we are willing to live without it. And he said, there's one thing we need above everything else. It's something we don't talk about these days. We need a mighty avalanche of conviction of sin. That was true when he said it, and it's even more true now. Because the sin balloon has blown even higher. 
And when it gets pricked with a pin, literally, as Israel found out, literally all hell could break loose, and it did on Israel. And it wasn't because they weren't forewarned. Even Abraham Lincoln, who I believe died as a believer, I don't think he went into the White House as a believer, I believe his conversion took place uh, during the Civil War, he, I believe he had a lot of Bible knowledge before his conversion. I believe he came to know the Lord when his Bible knowledge put him to his knees. But he had this to say. He said, America will never be destroyed from the outside. If we falter and lose our freedoms, it'll be because we destroyed ourselves. And how would that be? That would be by ignoring God. Ignoring God. Israel, they had a lot of warnings, but the trouble really was near. It was much closer than the people believe. It was only four to five years away. What if there's something not that far away? Are we ready to be like Abraham? Or are we going to be like Lot, hanging out in Sodom? And Abraham had to go rescue Lot. But I tell you what, I want, to be us, I want us to be a prepared people that we're ready to go rescue some Lots. Because Lot at least was a believer. He just had made a really foolish decision to live in the world, and he barely escaped his life before Sodom was utterly destroyed, didn't he? The rest of his family didn't survive, except for his two daughters, and they were a mess. But Abraham was there to be a help. And we need to be a little bit of Abraham, a little bit of Ezekiel, <laughs> amen, in the days in which we live in. A little bit of both, a little bit of Abraham, a little bit of Ezekiel, a little bit of Joseph, a whole lot of Apostle Paul in the days in which we live in. Amen?